All right, we are back. We've done a lot of interviews for this program uh, over the last five years, and, and i got to say that uh, there's a few people that still overwhelm me as uh, interview subjects. Well, there were three. Now there's two. It was uh, Professor Peter Dale Scott, filmmaker Ken Burns, and General Chuck Yeager. Well, happily, we interviewed uh, Peter Dale Scott uh, a month ago, and it went well. And I've had, I've had Ken Burns' email address for like four years. I've never had the courage to book him for the show. The problem is I have too many questions. I've got something like 18 or 19 hours of Ken Burns material in my living room. Actually, it might be more than that. Anyway, as mentioned, uh, they did get an interview with him in Sacramento Magazine, also Sacktown Magazine, and he got a nice write-up in the Sacramento Bee. Courtesy of an of invite by a Dr. Andy Jones, I was able to hear Ken Burns in the talk he gave at the California Museum of History. He got off to a bit of a slow start thanks to numerous technical glitches with the material. But when he hit his stride, it was just amazing. He was like a Jedi Knight addressing the audience. He spoke so forcefully and so movingly about why he set out to chronicle what happened in World War II while we still have vets with us. With the amount of photographic material available for, uh, you know, an event as recent as World War II, this really promises to be just a fantastic series. Personally, I would like to, uh, to see it before I conduct an interview with Mr. Burns, and, and hopefully I will and we will. The series commences on KVIE on Monday, September 23rd at 8 p.m. KVIA also did some original productions in conjunction with the Ken Burns special that, um, that will focus on some of the Valley Air Bases uh, that operated here in World War II. I'm sure Mather and McClellan were both in operation then. Uh, there'll also be a special on Mexican-Americans in World War II. Now, this series did come under some criticism because apparently it did not, uh, did not recognize the contributions of Mexican-Americans. When asked about that, Ken Burns pointed out, look, we, we asked in the four cities that we, uh, we tried to profile uh, for people to come forward and tell their story. And it so happened that we did not get anyone come forward who was a Mexican-American. It was not a deliberate slight. I mean, in an event as vast as World War II, you certainly can't tell everyone's story. Personally, I think that criticism was quite unfair, but if another original uh, special comes out of it, well, so much the better. But during the, the preview that he had over at the museum, uh, Ken Burns showed a clip of, 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 of footage shot by Navy photographers of the invasion of the island of Tarawa in the Gilbert uh, chain, and uh, boy, at the end of it, when the lights came on, there was just a collective sniffle in the room, I think, as everyone had tears in their eyes. So moving was the story being told. And in the audience were some of the World War II veterans, including a few of the Japanese Americans who fought with distinction in the European theater. And the filmmaker went out of his way to put the focus on the participants, not on him. Thankfully, uh, Sam McManus uh, recalled uh, a joke he made that I'd forgotten. Writing in the B, Mr. McManus noted that uh, often to open his lectures, Burns will tell this anecdote. On my refrigerator, there's a faded New Yorker cartoon, two men in hell with flames licking at their feet. One guy says, apparently my over 200 screen credits didn't mean a damn thing. Anyway, uh, PBS is going to go head-to-head with commercial, the commercial networks and Sweeps Week, and uh, we think uh, Ken Burns is likely to come out on top. And yes, we'll be watching, and we think you, you should too. And if uh, for some reason you haven't taken in some of his previous efforts, you need to go out and uh, buy or rent some of these. His uh, series in the Civil War is a classic. 
In fact, I can't think of anything he's ever done that doesn't make compelling viewing. So if you haven't seen it, do yourself a favor and go, go to check some of this stuff out. Just to give you a little illustration of, of why he succeeds or why I think he succeeds, just want to quote from his article by Justin Ewers in Sacktown Magazine. He was asked, Unlike most documentaries on the History Channel, which focus on famous generals, you chose to tell the stories of regular people. Ken Burns responded, The History Channel is so distracted by an unnecessary interest in celebrity generals and politicians, by an unnecessary focus on strategy and tactics, and by an obsession with weaponry, when the real question is, what was it like to be in that war? War isn't just Oban Gruppenfuhrer so-and-so moving his elite crack unit into the whatever. Who cares? We've told our story entirely from the bottom. These are regular people that you and I could have had Thanksgiving with. The famous pass are seen, but they are bit players off on the edge of the stage. All right, we've mentioned now, what, I don't know how many publications here locally. Let's mention one more, the Sacramento News and Review, our liaison to that publication, and our own environmental correspondent now joins us. Jennifer Davidson, welcome back. Hi, Doug. Thanks for having me back. Good to be here. Well, it's good to have you. You, uh, you went over before the fair closed to take a look at the Science on a Sphere exhibit. We talked with Alyssa Lynn here on this show about that, and I think it sounds like you were as impressed as I was. Oh, God, it was amazing. Weather has always been the six-day forecast on Yahoo for me, and after this experience, it was just incredible. I mean, it impacts every element of our daily life, and I just had no idea. Yeah, let's remind, remind our listeners, Alyssa Lynn described this globe. It was like, it's like six feet across. It's got four projection systems. You see in three dimensions the actual satellite photos of what the Earth looks like, and you, you can see things you just don't, don't see in a, in a flat map. Exactly. It makes you feel as though you're there around the entire globe all at once. They projected images of global warming and hurricanes, tsunamis, everything that you could want to see related to weather. And then once a hurricane hit, it would show the impact all the way around the world. It was just incredible. Yeah, you got to see uh, Katrina, I guess, in slow-mo, the impact of New Orleans on the globe. Well, you could see the, the big swirling white cloud that was the hurricane. You could see it forming, and you could see it moving in, and you could see it tightening, and then, and then you could see it hit. It was impressive in an almost terrifying way to be able to see the actual event from a satellite perspective that we could only witness the aftermath of before this big science on a sphere when it was happening, they kept replaying the sequence of the hurricane tracking across the Gulf of Mexico. But there was something about seeing it in, in, on a sphere in three dimensions, watching it form out in the Atlantic and move all that way that just, I, I, I'm having a hard time describing it, but it just, it, it just really brings it home in a way you just see in three dimensions. It does. It was just much more powerful. And, and they, well, and they also had an exhibit that showed flooding, and I didn't get a chance to see that because Alyssa was showing it to me before they were they had it operational. But you got a chance to see that. Oh, I did, and that one probably had the biggest impact on me. It showed various homes in the Sacramento region in the hundred-year floodplain and how those homes would be impacted if a flood hit the region in two different scenarios: one with wetlands and two, without wetlands. The difference in the outcome with and without wetlands was amazing. Wetlands 
serve as a natural sponge that absorbs excess water. And when you remove all the wetlands like we do here in this region to build up, you lose that natural ability to protect against floods. And homes that weren't flooded in the floodplain region when the wetlands were there suddenly had water in their home. Yeah, well, Alyssa was showing me the exhibit. It wasn't it wasn't up and running yet, but I looked at her and said, "And this is the Natomas exhibit." <laughs> <laughs> and she looked exactly. at me and said, "We prefer to call it something else." <laughs> <laughs> it's ridiculous that they developed out there. There's actually an article in the B, I think, a couple of days ago. Uh, some people think we're just not developing out there fast enough. They we need to get things really put, just get a move on out there, really get more houses and hospitals and and what have you, under 20 feet, potentially, of water if there's a breach in the levee. It's, it's, it's wacky. Exactly. I remember several years ago when it was the big hot topic in the region and construction was actually a standstill for a while, and then, I guess, something else became bigger, and then... No, our city uh, fathers, in their wisdom, decided, well, it would be wrong to have <laughs> these people not develop it. After all, we promised it to them. I do feel sorry for people that are living out there in the Natomas region. I, I do hope they have in some inflatable boats at the I ready. I uh, definitely they're, worry. They're talking about a, a dry winter this winter, which, you know, will, I think will lull everybody into a false sense of security, perhaps. In the article that I wrote for today's News and Review, what we're talking about is Sacramento is the number one city in the nation that could experience a Katrina-like disaster. And... What that merely means is a rapid series of storms that could, one, cause our levees to break, or two, cause our rivers to flood. And that is not that far out of the reach of reality. No, no, you, you, mentioned, you mentioned that both with the Mississippi and New Orleans and with the Sacramento, you know, American rivers here in our, in our region, that we've got this levee system that is was not designed to carry the volumes of water that it's carrying. And yes, I guess that's from, the, that's from the buildup over time? That's exactly right. For one, at, at, as you mentioned, yes, our levees are not designed to hold back the amount of water that they do or protect the number of people that they do. And as we continue to put more water in our watersheds, which according to the Department of Water Resources, by 2050, scientists project that we're going to lose 25% of the Sierra snowpack, which actually means that we're going to deposit much more water into our watersheds, which um, has significant impacts for here in California. It just stresses the levees um, even more and then has a whole nother slew of ramifications for water in California. No, well, actually, I, I got to ask you about that. Is this is the thinking here that with a little bit warmer temperature, the, 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 the precipitation will not be frozen at higher altitude, but rather it will be running off the lower altitudes into the rivers that much more quickly? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. And, and the rising global temperatures has the ability to change the weather patterns and make them far more variable, causing far more severe winters and, and spring floods. So the impacts are, are very significant. So in other words, it's not, it's not so reassuring that it was a cool summer. Uh, well, I'm not an expert on what it means to have a cooler summer in the face of global warming, but scientists do agree that global warming is here and here to stay. There was an interesting article um, out on CNN just a few days ago that has it's 
breaking news, actually, in um, the Arctic's northwest passage between Europe and Asia has just become completely navigable, which is something it's never been before. And um, this is due to the melting sea ice, which wasn't expected to take place or, or happen at, at this level until the year 2040. So we're looking wow. at more than... Yeah, yeah, more than 30 years ahead of schedule due to what scientists, well, scientists are attributing it to global warming. Shades of Al Gore, yeah. He talked about inconvenient truth, but but my understanding is right now, of course, as we're approaching the, the autumnal equinox, and of course the polar regions will now begin their six-month night uh, above the Arctic Circle, but right now this, the ice pack at the North Pole is, is the, the least had, that has ever been seen, ever. Yeah. The impacts of that are really significant. What happens when we have ice at, at the poles is they, they function as huge reflectors for the sun's rays. And once once that's gone, then the sun's rays become absorbed by the ocean rather than reflected. As the ocean absorbs these rays, it merely warms the ocean faster, which then fuels the destruction of the remaining ice, and it's just a vicious circle. Anyway, we should point out your article is in the current issue of the Sacramento News and Review, as uh, will be others in the future. Yes, sir. And do you have in mind what the next articles are going to be? I do. Um, my next article that I'm working on is very near and dear to me. It is about the treatment, or I should say mistreatment, of circus elephants and the issues that are surrounding that topic. Just a quick plug to anybody who's listening, or a anti-plug, don't attend the circus that's coming to town. By the way, did you see the article, elephants are now known to be carriers of antibiotic-resistant mycobacterium tuberculosis. Elephants are carrying around drug-resistant TB. Yeah. Not a good thing. I, I heard that. Maybe if we stop having them in circuses, we won't have that issue either. Indeed. Jen, it's always a pleasure. We look forward to having you uh, back soon. Thanks so much. I look forward to coming back. All right, we'll be talking about pachyderms. What, two weeks? About two weeks. All right, fair enough. That sounds great. All right, that was Radio Parallax's environmental correspondent, Jennifer Davidson. She also writes for the Sacramento News and Review. All right, let's do a bit of follow-up here before we end uh, the segment. Ira Flato was in the program a couple of weeks ago, and when we talked about what he was looking forward to covering in the months to come, he talked about politics and scientific literacy or as in the case of the current administration, illiteracy. And I must say, I was a little bit surprised by that answer, but uh, worth mentioning again, uh, something we touched on before, an editorial in New Scientist magazine last July 28th from Lawrence Krauss, director of the Center for Education and Research in Cosmology and Astrophysics at Case Western Reserve University, who noted that when 10 Republican candidates for the next U.S. president were asked in the first presidential debate, that was last May, whether they believe in evolution, three of them, State Senator Sam Brownback, Arkansas Governor Mike Huckabee, and Colorado Representative Tom Tancredo, answered no. He went on to say, this might shock many new scientist readers, but among the U.S. public, a common reaction has been, who cares? Noted Lawrence Krauss, science is not merely storytelling. It makes predictions that help us to control our destiny. The actions of the president, and indeed any politician, should be based on the best possible evidence, not a priori beliefs, whether they're ideologic or religious. Our future depends on it. There was also an article in New Scientist the next month. This is the August 18th issue about uh, biofuels, and Ira Flato talked about switchgrass and things like that, and uh, 
That is probably also worth your while to look up on the web and read that article from New Scientist. And closer to home, in a similar vein, we would refer you to the Sacramento News and Review for the article by William J. Kelly in last week's issue titled Driving Under the Influence, How the Corn Ethanol Lobby Bought Its Way Into Your Gas Tank. Noted William Kelly, ethanol proponents are creating the mistaken perception that the biofuel can lead the way toward energy independence and emits less of the carbon dioxide that causes global warming. Instead, rapid growth of the heavily subsidized ethanol industry will lead to higher food prices, overuse of water, water pollution, and soil erosion. Just as serious, it will not help clean the air and will even increase air pollution, particularly in smog-clouded cities in the Sacramento and San Joaquin Valleys. A study at Stanford found that ethanol poses the same health risks or worse than gasoline. And in a little-known reality that surely will annoy many drivers, ethanol-fueled cars get poorer mileage than gas-powered cars, up to 25% worse. Anyway, it seems we need to get Mr. Kelly on this program to talk a bit about his article and uh, the corn ethanol lobby. But it's time for a break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We'll be back after these messages. 